The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. Before we do our scripture reading in Matthew 1 this morning, I have the privilege of welcoming Mackenzie Buxman up to preach the word this morning. Uh, Many of you know that Mackenzie's been a part of our preaching team here at Central Bible for the last several years, uh, which is a group of people, of leaders, who get together every week to look back and review last week's sermon and as well look forward to the upcoming sermon and plan together. Her fingerprints have been all over uh, many of the sermons that you've heard over the last few years. Um, She's a gifted teacher. We're really grateful for her. Um, She's got a background in Hebrew studies. And um, we're excited for Mackenzie to preach this morning. Um, I just want to say that the elders, uh, the whole, we want to recognize that the, the whole church, I think, has seen Mackenzie's teaching gift uh, come out as she's co-taught sermons with me in the past. And um, all of us, the elder team and other leaders, are unified in um, wanting to see other men and women in our body with gifts uh, given opportunities to use those gifts to build up the church. And uh, we believe Mackenzie has the gift of teaching, and so we're excited and unified together in our desire to see her use that gift to bless all of us. Um, and so with that, oh, and one other thing, I think it's particularly fitting that uh, we hear from Mackenzie during the Advent series, as Mackenzie is a woman who is pregnant, and she's going to be talking about the story of Jesus' birth. And something about that just seems to fit really well. I don't know why. Amen. Thank you. Yeah, you can clap. Go ahead. It's good. Uh, With that, would you join me in looking at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being just a man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to his son, and he called his name Jesus. 
This is God's word. Amen. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, well, I'm really excited to get to share with you guys this morning. Um, this has actually been kind of a big week for me. Um, as Andrew said, I am pregnant. Um, I turned 27 weeks on Friday, so I hit the seventh month mark, so that's pretty exciting. Um, and then I worked my last day at my job that I've worked at for the last five years, so that was kind of a big deal. Um, got a haircut, you know, new hairstyle, new me. Julie's clapping, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so it's been, a, it's been a big week, but I'm really excited that I get to um, continue all those big, amazing things and share with you guys this morning. Would you guys bow your heads and, and pray with me before we begin? God of grace, um, we ask that your spirit would speak to us this morning, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would move us to a place of awe and wonder where we need to have more awe and wonder. And help us to see your unfailing presence, your steadfast love this morning. That it might compel us to love you and your creation more. Amen. So for those of you that don't know, last night was actually the winter solstice. How many people knew that it was the winter solstice? Oh, wow. I'm actually surprised. Someone asked me recently, do you know what the winter solstice is or what a solstice is? And I was like, yes. And he was like, what is it? And I was like, never mind. I don't know. <laughs> so I looked it up. Um, I knew it had something to do with like the amount of light and dark that we had. But other than that, I didn't really know. So the winter solstice is the shortest and darkest night of the year. And there's a whole bunch of other fascinating stuff about the tilt of the earth. I'm not going to get into that. But uh, the early church actually chose to celebrate Advent during this time, during the winter solstice, for that reason that it's the darkest night. Just before we celebrate on December 25th, the long-awaited coming of Jesus, the Messiah, we live through the darkest night. And it's while Christmas is supposed to be a season of light and joy and hope and love, all the good things, we can't be too quick to jump to those feelings. Uh, I've been reading this Episcopalian priest over this Advent season. She has a ton of writings and sermons on Advent, and she points out that the early church has always um, started Advent in the dark. Um, obviously, you've got the solstice, the literal darkness, but the metaphorical darkness, uh, reflecting on the uh, pain and suffering of the world, the brokenness of the world, um, and as followers of Jesus, we're called not to live as, everything, as if everything is idyllic and perfect when it's clearly not. We're called to enter into the pain and the suffering of this world just as Christ did. We're called to live differently despite that, but we're called to live into it with true hope. And this Episcopalian priest, her name is Fleming Rutledge, great name, uh, she writes that true hope means trusting in the God who raises the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is the truly radical nature of the Advent promise, which sweeps away cheap comforts and superficial reassurances 
and in the, most, in the midst of the most world-overturning circumstances, still testifies that, behold, I am coming soon. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And so, let us begin in the dark. It doesn't take long for us to take stock and realize that the world is not at rest, that we are not at rest. Our world is plagued by pain and suffering, selfishness, corruption, mental illness, hunger, disease, the list goes on. And here in the American West, uh, the current adult cohort is the most addicted, depressed, anxious, in debt, medicated, and distracted cohort in US history. And honestly, if you think you don't fall into any of those categories, think again. While we often think of addiction as something that only concerns drugs, alcohol, porn, a lot of psychologists are arguing that the vast majority of Americans have an extremely unhealthy relationship with their phones. I am one of them. And this unhealthy relationship actually borders on full-on addiction. The psychologists label it, at the very least, as a compulsion. I just have to check that last text message or that email. I have to check my Facebook, my Instagram. And honestly, it goes beyond our phones. We, I think we all know that there's multiple different types of technology that we are borderline addicted to. In terms of money, Portland ranks number six for the highest household debt. Too much money on avocado toast and craft beer, most likely. Obviously not craft beer for me right now. Mostly sticking to the avocado toast. In terms of depression, Portland was recently reported to be the most depressed city in America. That and Vancouver to our north. We are the top two depressed cities. Out of 150 cities, we have the highest rates of depression. And obviously, I think the weather plays a huge factor in that. But I also think that that depression goes a lot deeper than just the weather. This stuff isn't even the half of it. It's not even really the most depressing elements of our culture. We haven't even delved into statistics on hunger, homelessness, corruption, politics. And we aren't going to this morning. I think I've gone into the darkness enough. But my point is we can all agree that there is something wrong with the world. And I think whether you believe in Jesus or not, you realize that something is deeply wrong with us. If you're a follower of Jesus, we can take comfort in knowing that God did not intend for it to be this way, nor will he let it stay this way. The biblical narrative reveals to us that from the time of the Garden of Eden, God has been determined to save us, to redeem and restore us. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been invited to participate in that redemptive process the redemption of yourself and the redemption of the world at large. That means we're called to live differently. We are called to love God's creation the way he loves it. That's really hard to do, right? It's easier said than done. We read the Hebrew scriptures, the story of the Israelites, and we read that they failed over and over again to live out that love. Yet God continued to choose them anyways. 
He continued to be with his people, to pursue them, to rescue them. Has he not done the same thing for us? He continues to choose us. The presence and love of God was shown through the advent of Jesus Christ. And this morning, I want us to see how important it is to live into his presence and live out that love to the world around us. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been in the book of Zechariah, and today we are going to focus on the fulfillment of the prophecy of the Messiah um, as Emmanuel, God with us, and how that should push us to press into the presence of God and live out his love. So I'm just going to do a quick recap of Zechariah. No need to turn there, but I'm just going to do a quick recap to set the stage for us. So the book of Zechariah, we, I think Oshawa in the beginning talked about how it's set after the Israelites were exiled in Babylon, and they were permitted to return back to Israel by the new reigning Persia. And it's important to remember why Israel was sent into exile. They were sent into exile because they were worshiping other gods. They were not worshiping just Yahweh. They were neglecting the poor, the orphan, the widow. There was just a complete and total lack of justice. Essentially, they were completely failing to keep the law, God's Torah. They had been unfaithful to their covenant with him. But now that the new regime of Persia has taken over, the people are permitted to return back to Israel, back to their land, and they're permitted to rebuild the temple, the monument of their faith, the place where Yahweh's spirit dwells. And a group of people had been fasting and grieving their exile, their loss of the temple, but now it's being rebuilt. So rightfully, the people ask Zechariah, is it time to stop grieving? Can we stop fasting? Is the Messianic kingdom coming soon? Is the Messiah going to come and defeat Persia and restore us to our former glory? But in chapter 8, Zechariah responds to them, only if you are faithful to the covenant. Basically, you must pursue justice and peace. And in his response, Zechariah basically reverses their question by essentially asking them, Are you going to become the kind of people who are ready to receive and participate in my kingdom? Not whether or not it's coming, but are you ready for it? The fasting that they were doing, it should have led them to their need for God. It should have pushed them to seek his presence, to seek his ways to love others. And if they had truly been repentant and turned from their sin, the fasting would have led them to that. But instead, it became about their self-righteousness, about getting their land back, about getting that temple back. And the book ends with a prophecy of this messianic kingdom where the shepherd slash king comes and the evil nations are confronted with God's justice and God pours out a spirit of repentance on the people resulting in restored relationship with him. It's very beautiful. But it's a future telling. It's not there yet. And this coming messianic kingdom not only didn't come the way Israel thought it would, but it didn't come when they thought it would. Now, go back to Genesis 12. Remember, Israel was called to be a blessing to the nations, to be a witness of God's love for his creation. And one of the things, the reasons I love studying the Old Testament 
It's because I see myself in it a lot. Israel got so lost along the way. But the prophets over and over, Zechariah being one of them, reminds us that God still loves his people and he wants them to repent and to return to him that they might know his love and reflect that love to the world around them. The people ask the wrong question, though. We do that a lot, right? We ask the wrong question. The people asked, should we keep fasting or grieving? They're so focused on the temple and being back in their own land, they still don't seem to have learned their lesson. Even though they've returned to the land, they're not in exile anymore technically. Um, They're continuing in their corrupt ways. They're still not taking care of the poor, the orphan, the widow. And essentially, they've created their own type of exile. Sure, they're back in the land, but mentally they're not. They're still living in exile. And Yahweh is trying to show them that their love for God will be revealed by their love for people. And vice versa, their love for people will be revealed by their love for God. Love and obedience, you see it all the time in the Old Testament, that it's two sides of the same coin. And in Zechariah 8.23, he says, This is what Yahweh Almighty says. In those days, ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, Let us go with you, because we have heard that God is with you. Zechariah is saying that people from all languages and nations will be drawn to them because God is with them. How will they know God is with them? Because of how they act. It's this reciprocal relationship. Fasting and seeking God's presence should produce in his people loving obedience. Okay, now we're going to switch gears to Matthew 1, 18 through 25. If you want to turn there, you can. Um, I'm just going to be focusing really on that one phrase, um, Emmanuel. So fast forward with me. 400 years later, they've been waiting for the Messiah. He's still not yet come. Rome is now in power. The temple's been rebuilt, but it's not the same as it was before. There's still rampant injustice, hypocrisy. But two of God's faithful people learn that they are going to parent the promised Messiah, Mary and Joseph. And there's a lot going on in this passage. I mean, we could talk about Mary being a betrothed teenager who is told she is carrying the Messiah. That's kind of crazy in and of itself. We could talk about how Joseph has just been told that his fiance is pregnant and that it's not his child. Oh, but the child was conceived by the Holy Spirit and is the Messiah. That's not a big deal or anything. But I don't want us to focus on that today. Um, What I want us to focus on is the fulfillment of the prophecy of him being called Emmanuel, God with us. And the angel doesn't use the word Messiah specifically, but the title that he assigns to Jesus, the name that he's given, and when he calls him Emmanuel, it essentially communicates to Joseph that Mary is pregnant with the Messiah. Now, Joseph would have been very familiar with the Messianic prophecies. He doesn't have the scriptures memorized like a rabbi, per se, but he knows the gist. He knows he and his fellow Israelites are still not fully free, 
and that they are waiting on the promised Messiah to come and deliver them. And he's told by the angel to name the child Jesus, or in Hebrew, Yeshua. Can you guys say that? Yeshua. There you go. Which means Yahweh saves. He is meant to be the Savior. He's going to save us from our sins. And this name tells Joseph that he is, this child is the long-awaited Savior promised back in Genesis. And then when the angel tells him that he will be the fulfillment of the prophecy, he will be Emmanuel, Hebrew for God with us, Joseph knows his history. He knows that God was with Israel throughout their journey to the promised land, that he was with them throughout their time in Egypt. He showed up and saved them from Pharaoh. Joseph knows God was with them as they wandered through the desert. We talked about this um, back in chapter 1 of John, that God condescended himself. He limited himself to a tent in Exodus 34 to be with his people. Remember? And I'm not sure if Joseph fully understood the implications of what was happening, but he's definitely going to be remembering all of that. God's been with them before, and he's going to be with us again, but in a different way. And he faithfully responds, regardless of whether or not he fully understands it, and he takes Mary as his wife, and he raises Jesus as his son. The last couple months, we've been going through uh, John chapter 1, and do you guys remember when I shared... um, uh, on John 1.14, I talked about how Jesus dwelt among us, um, like that Exodus 34 passage, he tabernacled among us, that he condescended himself to be with us, that the God of the universe through whom all things were created took on human flesh, Emmanuel, God, with us. He took on a weak human body just to be with his creation and to save his creation. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus did not consider equality a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He humbled himself. He stooped down to our level and took on our flesh. Amy read in the Advent reading, The God who is so majestic and terrifying that we must hide our face from his glory is the same God who has come down to deliver his people, to be with his people. The son who sits upon his glorious throne with all the nations gathered before him is the same one who reached out and touched a leper, washed feet, and turned the other cheek. Okay, I know I wasn't, I said I wasn't going to talk about Mary's perspective, but I have to share that being pregnant and reading Mary's story has been really impactful for me, I'm reflecting on Emmanuel as God with us. Um, I'm having a baby boy, I'm really excited. Um, and I've been able to feel him kick in my womb, which has been one of the craziest experiences. And so imagining what it felt like for Mary to hear the angel telling her, you're carrying the Messiah. And for her to feel him kick, she knew in the most intimate of ways that God was with her. That's a strange but wonderful gift to feel the God of the universe with you in your womb. 
how intimately attuned she had to be to the, mis- the mystery of the incarnation, that Jesus, her son, was God incarnate, that she didn't just carry a life inside her womb, but that she carried life and love himself inside her womb. The very definition of those words. The mystery and the mystery of God taking on human flesh, Jesus shows us how much he wants to be with us. His withness, his presence with us through his first advent shows us that he desperately wants to fix what's been broken and call us to something greater, to call us to partner with him in the restoration of creation, the ushering in of his kingdom, where love and his presence abound. But we often act like the Israelites, don't we? We forget that God created us, that he loves us, that he wants to be with us, that he calls us to love his creation. Like Israel, we create our own exile We go through the motions where we aren't really seeking his presence or embodying his love to the world. And this week, I just honestly, I thought when we do this, when we live as if God is not with us, is that what we're doing? We live as if love himself is not among us. I want to ask you this morning, What if we aren't living into the mission that God has for us because we don't really believe that he's with us? We have to get our heads around the fact that he is with us. Now, I don't want you to think of his presence as a creepy Santa Claus. Uh, He knows if you've been bad or good. While, yes, he sees our actions, good and bad, he isn't keeping track of them. He... We have to live into his presence, and it isn't about behavior modification. It's about a heart change. Obviously, it should result in how we act, but he's not like Santa Claus. He's better than that. Thank goodness. When we realize that he's with us because he so desperately loves us and wants to be with us, we rethink the way we act. We start to filter everything we do through the lens of his love and his presence, and we We realize that we are called to love his creation because it's worth loving, not just loving it because it's the right thing to do. But back to what it looks like to live as if he is with us. Paul Pastor uh, ponders this in his book on the Holy Spirit. Um, A bunch of us women have been going through this book. It's been really, really great. Um, Paul says, That if we lived out of that reality that the Spirit of God is with us, it would change the way we did everything. We might begin to cease the broken ways in which we exploit and judge one another. The ways we rate and devalue our brothers and sisters. If we accepted that God is with us, we would live differently, fight differently, make peace differently, parent differently, relate differently, grow differently, drive our cars differently. We would buy and sell differently. We would learn and teach, rest, and work differently. Paul says, we would live wholeheartedly set apart members of a priestly kingdom. If we lived as if the sustainer of all things 
is as present in our world as our doctrine tells us he is. So why don't we? Why don't we live as if he is as present with us as we say we believe he is? What is stopping us from living differently? What is stopping us from believing he is with us? I think there's a couple of reasons. First, we aren't actively seeking his presence. Instead, we are often filling that need for his presence with other things. In a culture and a season marked deeply by consumerism, we have to fight like crazy to say no to the desire for more things and recenter ourselves on the thing we really need more of. In a culture addicted to hurry and distraction, we have to fight like crazy to slow down and to stay present. And I know you're sitting here, like myself, thinking, I'm bombarded with these messages every day. I don't have time to slow down. It's hard for me to be present. But I'm telling you, and I'm telling myself this as much, if we spent more time on our knees in silence, listening to God, asking him to speak, it would be a heck of a lot easier to say no to it all, to slow down, to have the margin in our lives to be more present with those around us, to be open to the opportunities God has for us to love his creation. We have to break this cycle we are in. We have got to make time for sitting in silence, solitude, and stillness. I mean, look at our example. Jesus started his ministry as an adult. Day one of ministry in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell us that he was baptized. And then what does he do? He goes straight into the desert to fast. They've been waiting for Jesus to start his ministry for forever, and he goes into the desert for 40 days and nights. We see Jesus seek silence and solitude and stillness numerous times throughout his ministry. And I think he's trying to show us something. I want you to ask yourself, what needs to be cut out of your life so that you can make more time to sit in his presence? He gave up everything to be with us. What are we going to give up to be with him? The second reason I think we aren't living as if he is with us is that we aren't being mindful of him throughout our daily lives. As we're driving our cars, parenting our kids, working our jobs, running errands, are we recognizing that the spirit of God is with us in these moments? It starts with that time in, in silence, solitude, and stillness, but from there it takes practice. He is here. He's right here. We have to stop and remember it in those moments. He's with me. He loves me, and he wants me to be present right now, wherever I am. He wants me to love my kids well. He wants me to love this next customer that walks in. He wants me to do this next project well. Even in the mundanity of life, he says, I am here with you. I am present with you. Be present with others. And the last thing that I think is, <sighs> makes it hard for us 
is that we quickly forget what love really looks like. We have to remind ourselves of this constantly because our world's version of love is something much different. This is why we need to be in the word of God and to be more aware of his presence in our lives because he is our true definition of love. He shows us that love requires that presence, that mindfulness. It requires sacrifice, humility, patience, kindness. The love that we are called to give is that stubbornly loyal love. Do you guys remember that from the book of Ruth? That Hesed love. It is concerned with seeking the good of others no matter the cost. True love is subversive. It's tough. It's unafraid. Think of how many times he chose Israel. He rescued her when all she did was turn away from him. Now think of all the times you have done the same. And yet he loves you and he pursues you still. That is our definition of love. And our job as Christians is simple. We're called to love God and love others. And like the people of Israel, we need to figure out what is getting in the way of us seeking him and recognizing that he is with us so that we can participate in his kingdom. It would be easy for us to continue in our world of, of false reality. The Christmas of our culture wants us to feel joy and light, and that's all well and good. But we can't know true joy and light if we aren't willing to enter into that darkness. The darkness within others and the darkness within ourselves. We can't know we cannot continue to live like we are in exile. The kingdom of God is now, but it is also not yet. And if we are doing our job right as Christians, we should feel like we are living in those two places, the now and the not yet. We should be going about our Christmas decorating, baking cookies, shopping, but we should also be reflecting on the darkness and letting us move, letting it move us to an act of worship. Advent is the midnight of our year. It's the darkest darkness before the dawn. And when Jesus came as a baby to be God with us, when the Spirit came at Pentecost, it was the beginning of the end. It was the beginning of God's kingdom on earth. And God is calling us to participate in that kingdom. But we cannot do that unless our hope, our peace, our joy, our love is rooted in the reality of this broken world and rooted in the reality that God is redeeming it and that he's invited us to participate in that redemption. So I want us to ask ourselves this morning, do we actually believe that God is with us? Do we see that belief lived out in our lives? If not, what is keeping us from believing this? What is keeping us from truly believing that the God of the universe is with us? What is keeping us from participating in his kingdom? In this season, we celebrate the first coming of Jesus, his first dwelling on this earth. 
Let's not celebrate it in vain. Let's live out the reality that God is with us by showing up and participating in his kingdom as we wait for the day when he is with us again and all the pain and the brokenness is washed away and all's been made new. Creation and creator together at last. Amen? All right, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we recognize you are here with us right now. That the sustainer of the universe, the sustainer of the universe is with us right now. That you're begging us to just give you the time of day. We need your help. We cannot do it alone. We need the help of your spirit. We need the help of each other. Would you unify us as a body, as a community? Help us to push one another, to pursue you, to seek your presence. Help us to call out in one another the things that need to be cut out of our lives so that we can participate in your kingdom work. Let us keep our eyes firmly fixed on you. We love you, Jesus. We are so unworthy of your love and presence, and yet you give it anyways. Let our kingdom go and yours come. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, God with us. Amen. We desire to be formed by the word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.